Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tell Me About Your Father. It's a new podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. Tune in today. And listen to the full first season, seven episodes in total. You're going to hear intimate interviews with a range of fascinating and influential people talking about their dads, the first guy they ever knew. Or maybe they didn't know him. Or maybe they wish they didn't know him. You know what I'm talking about. The show is created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Matthew Philp, and Elizabeth Thompson, all of whom are writers, all of whom have their own father stories to tell. Tell me about your father unpacks all facets of the father the loving the ambivalent the supportive the fiscally irresponsible the obscenely wealthy the dead the living the fathers who have built us up and the dads who have let us down the premiere season of tell me about your father seven episodes they're waiting for you on apple Podcasts, spotify and stitcher you can also find all of the episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com and additional content can be found on instagram at tellmeaboutyourfather also, don't forget, there's an anonymous hotline, 1-888-318-DADS, 1-888-318-DADS. You can call it, you can leave a message, you can tell a story about your father, and maybe they'll share it on Instagram, or leave your name and number, and maybe they'll ask you about your father. Tell me about your father. It's a new podcast. Go get it. Season one, available right now, all right? Okay. Hello, hey, how's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. This is a special Sunday episode, and my guest is Roxanne Gay. She is appearing on this program, I believe, for the third time. She is uh, one of our finest uh, writers, one of our finest cultural and social critics. She is the author of the books Aiti, An Untamed State, the New York Times bestselling Bad Feminist, the nationally best-selling book, Difficult Women, and the New York Times bestseller, Hunger. She is also the author of World of Wakanda for Marvel. So Roxanne Gay is on the program, and we are in conversation about a lot of different things, but I think in particular the moment that we're in. I thought it would be um, great for uh, you guys, my listeners, to hear her perspective on things. I certainly was interested in talking to her about it and uh, getting her take. So that is coming up. Wonderful to connect with Roxanne. I've known her for a while and uh, she's just delightful. So uh, that's coming up in just a second. Today's episode is brought to you by Grey Wolf Press, publisher of Postcolonial Love Poem, the new poetry collection by Natalie Diaz. The New York Times book review says, quote, Postcolonial Love Poem is no doubt one of the most important poetry releases in years. One to applaud for its considerable demonstration of skill, its resistance to dominant perspectives, and its light wrought of desire. Postcolonial Love Poem by Natalie Diaz, available now from Grey Wolf Press. Go get it. A listener named Spencer writes, Hi Brad, been loving the show lately. I have a question for you about your disappearance from Twitter. Now that some time has passed, you you are argu uh, arguably living in an era 
in the shut-in age, ripe for phones and social media. It's an election year. The news is out of control. I'd like to hear your thoughts again. Maybe there's nothing to report. That's fine, too. Thanks again. Also, more updates on your book are always welcome. Signed, Spenny. Yeah, I feel like I picked a great time to quit social media. I just, you know, things are completely insane. I feel like I would be that much more uh, wound up if I were constantly on Twitter in the way that I used to be. So... It's been, yeah, I mean, I think it's been a noticeable difference. It's not like, you know, I'm not like superhuman or like super mentally healthy in these times. I don't think you can be, but you know, what I like to emphasize when I tell people that I quit social media is that I couldn't handle it after at a certain point I had to admit that I was addicted and, uh, I was, I was ready to be done with being addicted to it or at least ready to be done letting it rule me. But there are some people who can handle it. I'm not one of them. As for my book, I have been working on it and uh, making progress. I hope I have a draft done, you know, by the end of this year. That's what I would safely say. My guest today is Roxanne Gay. Oh, thanks for the letter, Spencer. I forgot to thank you. Thank you for listening and thank you for, uh, for sending word. My guest today is Roxanne Gay. She is the author of multiple books, multiple film and television projects. You're going to hear about what she's got, like, you know, in the pipeline. It's almost, uh, like, hilarious how much she does. She's an incredibly busy human being and gets a lot done. So great to uh, have her on the program and to hear what she has to say. Here she is, folks. This is Roxanne Gay. Yes, it is quite an incredible time. Uh, every single day, I just wonder what on earth is going on in this world. Okay, I'm glad to hear you say that because I, you know, I think one of the reasons I want to talk to you is because I feel like you're one of our more astute um, cultural and social critics, and I'm I'm searching for clarity. And yet, as I think about all that is going on, and I'm constantly, you know, digesting information and trying to wrap my head around this moment and trying to formulate a plan for what to do, I can feel a bit overwhelmed and frankly, like a bit confused. It's, it's quite a lot to process. So it's nice to hear that, that maybe you're in the same boat or something of the same boat. Uh, yeah, I think most people are in the same boat. You know, the challenge for me is that this is like the one week a year when people care what black people think. And so I'm getting all kinds of, requests to do media and to uh, write essays and people are putting my books on lists of books to read as if if you merely read a book by a black person you're going to somehow address centuries of systemic inequality and so I appreciate the enthusiasm that everyone is demonstrating and at the same time, it's a little exhausting because you should have this enthusiasm for diversity and inclusion all year round. And it shouldn't take the murder of a black man to make people want to do better. And this time seems to be a little bit different in that more white people are getting on board, but they're also like doing a lot of I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. I hope that it's genuine. I hope that people are not just doing and saying the right things so they can be seen as doing and saying the right things. Mm -hmm. But only time will tell. Right. Yeah, I was reading. uh, I've been reading a lot of different things, but a couple of the essays or op eds that have really struck a chord with me recently are are two by Charles Blow at the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And he's been very skeptical about uh, the moment that we're in, or at least cautious, like tapping the brakes and saying like, Hey, like this isn't like, you know, Coachella for racial justice. This isn't like an Instagram moment. And I I don't know if you saw that video that's been going around the internet of like this girl and like a, like this white girl in like a beautiful dress, like taking a selfie in the streets. It just kind of, it just captured something about, uh, what you were saying and uh, what Charles Blow was writing about where it's like, you know, 
this this can't just be um, like a, a moment for self PR. You know what I'm saying? It's got to be something genuine that's tied to action, um, and it's got to be something. I think when it comes to white people, that involves um, sacrifice. Involves like some skin in the game. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it can't just be lip service. It's, there's got to be action tied to it, and there's got to be an acknowledgement that there are, uh, you know, systemic inequalities that need to be addressed. And when those inequalities are addressed, it might, you know, involve some sacrifice. It might involve having to rethink the way you approach things and have to live a little bit differently. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, I do. You know, I don't even think sacrifice is the right framework because that makes people think that you have to suffer. And it's more that you have to, uh, it's exactly what you said. You have to have some skin in the game. You have to put yourself on the line uh, and you have to do the work without asking black people to teach you what that work should look like. The number one question I've gotten over the past two weeks is what can I as a white person do? I'm so distraught over the state of affairs and that's well and good, but you have to go process that with your therapist and your white friends because your black friends are not your therapists. And uh, there's also a lot of reaching out and how are you doing? I'm fucking fine. How are you? Um, you know, so it's really a question of what kinds of things are you guys going to do on your own to really understand the realities of race in America? And how are you going to hold yourselves and your friends accountable? Uh, because um, the reality is that we can fight and protest and declare that we matter all we want, but until white people start holding each other accountable, not much is going to change. Right. And, you know, a lot of the people I see talking about diversity and inclusion and black lives matter have no black friends or one black friend. You look at their social circles and they don't hang out with black people. Most people don't. The world is very, very segregated. And people will say, oh, you know, I live in Koreatown or uh, I live in Inglewood or uh, I have a lot of black friends or I had a black nanny. And that's well and good, but that's not actually living a diverse life. And so I do think that a lot of white people are going to have to have very difficult conversations with themselves and have to really examine their lives and the choices that they make, where they choose to live, how they choose to live, uh, and recognize that you're part of the problem. Now, I'm not saying you have to pick up your entire life or just like run around trying to collect black friends, but you do have to recognize that you're not necessarily living an anti-racist life. And uh, I think it's going to be very difficult work, and I don't know that many people are up to that challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think about sometimes, you know, when, when I get past the the sort of the uh, the emotion and excitement and, um, you know, the heat of this moment out in the streets with people protesting and everything that's happening um, politically, both at the local and federal levels, you know, you get past all that and then it's like, okay, so what is this going to actually have to look like at the level of action for things to manifestly change. And mm -hmm. I was thinking about it this morning, just sort of kind of going over my thoughts before we got on, uh, on the line for the conversation. And I've said this before, like, I don't think that America could possibly get to a place of truly moving beyond this, unless we have some kind of formal truth and reconciliation committee moment and reparations, both for indigenous peoples and for African-Americans, um, you know, who are descended from uh, African-Americans who were held as slaves in the former American South. Like, I don't see how we could possibly heal in a meaningful way in the absence of a formal recognition of the original sin of the country. Um, yeah. Like, that's where my head is at. I just don't, like, for all the talk and all the little, like, you know, piecemeal legislation that okay so we take away chokeholds that's wonderful like i'm i'd love to see chokeholds be um you know uh, illegalized or removed from you know the uh the menu of options that law enforcement has 
when it comes to to dealing um, with people. And I don't even know if that's a sure thing. I think Mitch McConnell's pushing back on chokeholds, you know, of course. But um, just using it as an example, you know, you take those little things and um, I think sometimes people can, can cling to those things and feel like, oh, this is making me feel better about, you know, these issues and we are making progress. But I feel like we need a grand gesture. We do. But the thing is, we need both the grand gesture and both the smaller day-to-day things that people can do in their individual lives. You can't just do one or the other. It has to be both working in concert. And unfortunately, as long as we have incompetent and, quite frankly, mentally ill leadership, (laughs) we're not going to see any acknowledgement of that original sin. And it didn't even happen under Obama. So I, I don't know that it's ever going to happen. I think a lot of white people believe like we know slavery was bad. So um, we don't really need to say anything more about that, despite the fact that they still fly the Confederate flag and they do so eagerly. Uh, I was teaching in Indiana until last year and the Confederacy is alive and well in central Indiana, which yeah, is weird. That's where I grew Indiana. up. Yeah. And so people are very enamored by the Confederate flag. And the only reason I think things are maybe a little different this time is because NASCAR just banned the Confederate flag. It's something they should have done a long time ago. But whenever you come to the light is when you come to the light. And so they've done it now. And that is really encouraging because NASCAR is truly a bastion of the old guard and good old Southern racism. So it will be interesting to see if people comply, if they enforce this new rule um, and how they move forward. Because NASCAR is also a very segregated sport. There is one driver. His name is, I believe, Bubba Watson. And so one black driver, you know, they have a lot of work to do beyond this. Uh, and but we're starting to see people acknowledge, oh, maybe slavery really was bad and has contributed to the way the world is today. Like today, the country music band Lady Annabellum, whose music I do enjoy, uh, changed their name to Lady A. Uh, but it's a little, you know, it's one of those things. Like so many of these gestures, if they don't make include like grand sweeping gestures, just seem very cosmetic. You know, Lady Annabellum knew that that shit was fucked up when they started and they were told that their name was a problem and they never did anything. They're only doing something now because it's starting to affect their bottom line. Right. So, you know, it's just going to be a lot of frustration as we move forward and figure out how to navigate move like what the world can and should look like. Yeah. I mean, I, yesterday when they, uh, you know, when there was all this, uh, like hullabaloo about the army bases that were, that are named after Confederate generals or whatever, I gotta mm-hmm. be, I gotta be honest with you. I, like, it doesn't surprise me that this is the case, but I'm not up to speed on the military, um, uh, you know, at the level that I am on other things. I just don't know as much about it, uh, as some, I'm not, I've never been in the military or read much about it, but I was like, Oh my God, like there's all, there's many American military bases named after racist traitors. That's unbelievable to me. <laughs> like, I can't believe that, that, that this is something that I'm just now discovering and that we haven't addressed this decades ago. Yeah, it's shocking. Um, but it's also not, I don't know that a lot of black people are surprised that we haven't really addressed this because again, like, as you point out, this country has not really done enough to acknowledge the original sin. It has not had, um, a serious conversation about reparations. Well, and I was thinking too, you know, I was reading about, um, I was reading about uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, just as an example of the ways in which white people can elude, um, you know, wanting to have the difficult conversations with each other and with themselves that you were, you know, that you were talking about earlier. And in the in the decision, Brown versus Board of Education, which um, desegregated schools and had, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of of positive. Uh, to that Supreme Court decision in terms of its effects on our society. But one of the things that was highlighted uh, in the essay that I was reading is the fact that the language of the decision focused on 
um, the experience of how segregation uh, in schools would affect um, black children and did not mention once the issue of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that's like a telling, it was a, it was a good example of, you know, moving in the direction of justice, but never, um, when it comes to white people being willing to really address the core issue and the core, uh, illness and, um, problems that, that we have and that we, um, you know, have a lot of resistance to, to addressing because it's uncomfortable and it's painful. It is. It's really painful. Um, and I think what's even more painful is just recognizing how much work we have to do, how much work this country has to do, how much work this world has to do. And recognizing that we probably aren't up to the task is that where you stand? Because I was going to just ask you, like, do you feel, I feel like when I look to my future, I'm like, I don't think I'm going to, you know, I'll be gone before this is ever resolved. I don't think this is going to be something that we figure out in our lifetime uh, or maybe, you know, my children's lifetimes even, you know what I'm saying? It just feels like a, a long-term project and I don't want to be uh, too negative. You know, I think you do have to have you, you can't you can't just be wallowing in negativity or nothing ever will get accomplished. But I, you know, if I'm being real about it, I think it's it's there's a lot there's a long way to go, and I feel there is a long way to go, yeah. and I don't think people have any sense of just how long that way is. Um, you know, racism is so pervasive; it affects absolutely every part of life. Black people and people of color more broadly are underrepresented in every single industry. In the past week or two, we've started to see people talking about how toxic their workplaces are. Um, There is an editor at Bon Appetit who is paid $50,000 a year in New York City at Condé Nast. It doesn't make any sense. And none of the editors of color who who contribute to the Bon Appetit test kitchen are paid for their on-video appearances while their white counterparts are. Hmm. Um, And that's just one story. Every single workplace is terrible. Every single workplace and every single organization. it's, It's a disease. It is truly a disease. It is the other epidemic. And... You know, I think a lot of people, including myself, get incredibly overwhelmed because what on earth can we possibly do? But at the same time, we don't necessarily have the luxury of being overwhelmed. You know, it's easy for me sitting in my house with my partner, uh, having a reasonably good time to say I'm overwhelmed. But what about the people who can't afford that overwhelm, who can't afford our fatigue because their lives are on the line, because they live in peril you know we have to recognize that like while we intellectualize these things there are people who are genuinely suffering starting with the family of george floyd and then the families of all the other black people women and men who have been murdered by police um and also you know looking at people who spent five six seven hours in line to vote in georgia on Tuesday and you know it just it's not it's one thing after another and we are looking ahead to an election in November and there is no real hope that democracy is going to prevail even though people are like our 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 nation will continue to prosper like no our nation is falling apart at the seams today and Donald Trump is a tyrant There is no indication that he is going to cede power when he loses that election, if he even loses that election. Because, again, people are saying the right things right now, but I believe a great many white people are going to continue to vote for Trump in November, no matter what, because they are racist. So, uh, you know, I just, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, in terms of like practical action, you know, this is like where my head goes a lot of the time. It's like, okay, well, how do I shrink this down to something that I can do? Um, I think one of the things, like one of the primary things is having conversations with other white people, um, mm -hmm. you know, as like a primary activity and responsibility. And that includes my kids, you know, like it's been a real challenge, especially for my daughter who's nine and like hypersensitive to try to language this in a way that, you know, is clear, but it isn't like completely terrifying. It's a challenge as a parent, man. I mean, it's a lot for a kid to process. It's a lot for an adult to process, but then you try to filter it down to a kid who's really perceptive and it just becomes, um, you know, it becomes heartbreaking. And so there are those conversations. And then I think also getting active in politics, um, especially maybe local politics when it comes to law enforcement, you know, um, like those kinds of things are, are where I, and like putting money where my mouth is, you know, supporting causes and candidates that, you know, are working to, uh, effectuate positive change. Um, am I missing anything? I'm sure I'm missing plenty, but I mean, are there other things that you feel like, uh, you know, could make a practical difference in terms of helping to make things better in a serious way over the long term? Um, I mean, I think what you've suggested will go a long way. Uh, and I do think we all need to get involved in local politics. Uh, and, uh, you know, we live in Los Angeles. And uh, I think last week, maybe 10 days ago, there was a city council, uh, a police commission meeting. And I don't think they thought many people were going to show up. And thousands of people showed up and spent entire the entire day telling them how horrible they are. <laughs> and I don't know that they really listened. I don't know that any of it um, really got through to them. And But we need to start doing that. We need to get Jackie Lacey out of office. She's black, but she's not progressive. And she has not prosecuted a single police officer who has committed murder on the job in Los Angeles during her tenure. And so uh, I'm uh, personally supporting uh, Greg Gascon, and we're going to have a fundraiser for him and do the things that we can to make sure that he is elected. And we have to do that. We have to get on our city councils. We have to get on our school boards because so many of these um, issues start with uh, public education and how race plays out in public education. So, um, you know, we really do have to get off our asses and just do the best that we can to try and at least move a small corner of the world. I think if everyone does that, um, collectively, we will start to see action. I think people think that you have to make these grand sweeping gestures and that you have to like do these really huge things. But I actually think it's going to be millions of really small gestures in concert that are going to really create the change that we need to see. Right. Like, like unsexy, uninstagrammable, like grinding, you know, the grinding work of like local politics or canvassing or, organizing a fundraiser or absolutely like it's not that. necessarily sexy but it gets the real job done hmm. uh, and i think a lot of times people want it to be sexy they want it to be truly heroic and um you know what's truly heroic sometimes is showing up at your city council meeting it's voting for that 
off-term election um, for people you don't necessarily know, um, but you have to do that research and um, figure out who these people are uh, and whether or not they deserve your vote. So it's just there's a lot of work that has to be done and very little of it is sexy. Have you ever thought about running for office? Uh, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Uh, people, I get asked that all the time, and the answer is absolutely not. Like no run for office for Roxanne, at least like no. at least not in the foreseeable future, and not in any future. <laughs> <laughs> so I um, do not. I would not stand up to vetting, and um, you know, black women don't get the leeway that in that stupid white men get. So, uh, you know, you have to be perfect as a black woman when you run for office and I'm not perfect. And that's, I'm very comfortable with that. I'm very comfortable. I don't mind. Yeah. I've had people say to me before, just cause not because I would be any great candidate, but just because I think I'm, I, I, I genuinely follow politics and I like to talk about it and try to figure it out. And somebody will be like, why don't you, why don't you run for office? And I'm like, first of all, I would never stand up to the vetting. Second of all, like I don't feel like it's, I don't know. I don't feel like they need another guy like me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, got enough, like a white guy named Brad. Like, this is not the moment for a guy like me. I should be over here, you know, trying to figure it out and, and you know, articulating my confusion and um, doing whatever I do. But I feel like, you know, like, like if we want to tie this to the idea of making um, tangible change and being seriously proactive. One of the things that I found interesting in the past, you know, couple of weeks, and I think pretty meaningful is what Alexis Ohanian did, um, with his board seat at Reddit. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, this idea of deplatforming, which I think is somewhat new to most people. Um, you know, it's been around and I, I think a lot of people know what it means, but I'm not sure if people in the upper echelon in particular have given it a whole hell of a lot of thought. Um, it's a, it seems to be like a counterintuitive thing for a lot of people in seats of power to consider, but, um, mm -hmm. for him to say, you know, I've, I've had my run, I've done just fine. I'm going to step down now. And I would hope that my seat would be filled by a person of color. Um, that is something that if it caught on could probably make a meaningful impact in a shorter amount, like a more meaningful impact in a shorter amount of time, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing that we need to be seeing. We need to see white people putting themselves on the line in the ways that make sense for their lives. So today, for example, there was a video, <laughs> celebrities try so hard, but they always get it wrong. So today there was a video of a bunch of white celebrities staring with real seriousness into the camera saying, I take responsibility. I take responsibility. <laughs> oh, and, 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 like, and unfortunately it was a bunch of people I actually really like. Right. Um, and that's it. That was the entirety of the video. There were no calls to action. There were none of them saying that, for example, they might sign a pledge saying that they will never work on a set again unless it is equitable uh, in all ways. And so, you know, these gestures don't mean anything. These gestures are that was a gesture that would make them feel better about themselves, right. make them feel like they're doing something. But it's not enough. It's just a gesture. And I do think that the argument can be made that gestures are a way to start but they like bought a url and everything and they have this slick little video and they could have taken those resources and done something meaningful and i have no doubt that a lot of probably white people are going to watch that video and say oh you're so brave and <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is just so amazing. And thank you, or this <laughs> in internet parlance. Uh, you know, and that's why black people are fucking tired. Yeah. It's just like, this is the best you can do. Like, people that we like and admire and enjoy, like, this is the, your best? Like, you've had three months at home and this is what you came up with? It's just, uh, I mean, that's why it just feels hopeless. Like, if this is what our cultural supposedly elite come up with, my goodness. 
Well, that's what I mean. I mean, you, you kind of said it, but I mean, when I was talking about this idea of sacrifice earlier, uh, you know, f- for somebody to just say, I take responsibility, uh, that's really cheap. You know what I'm saying? Like, how, how, how easy is it to say that? Like, what about yeah. um, donate, like, like pledging to donate a portion of your salary on future projects to like X, Y, and Z cause? Or like you said, to sign a pledge saying, I'm not going to work on a, on a set unless it's equitable. We have proof of that on paper, you know, and it's contractually uh, stipulated. But, uh, you know, that's what I think white people and, yeah, I mean, white people of privilege in particular, there is going to have, I think there's going to come a, a time if we get serious about trying to address the systemic inequality that underlies so much of the systemic racism where the rubber is going to meet the road. You know what I'm saying? And, and people are going to have to say, wow, if we really want to make sure, just for example, that healthcare outcomes are equitable among people of different races, or if we mm-hmm. want to make sure that the public school system is functional and, and uh, functioning properly for all children, there is going to be cost involved. And I think that those costs are going to have to be paid down um, from the top or that they should be, you know, they certainly shouldn't be paid down from the bottom or paid up from the bottom. And so there are going to have to be real conversations, um, and real moments of, uh, of truth, you know, that, that we're going to have to confront and it will be interesting to see what happens. But this is where I start to feel a little hopeless. I start to feel like there could be, um, you know, there's all this kind of like, um, you know, th- these feelings of, uh, camaraderie and optimism and goodwill right now in this moment when people are out protesting. But what happens when somebody says, and by the way, you know, we're going to need you to be willing to accept a higher tax rate, or we're going to be willing, we're going to need you to be willing to give up your board seat. You know, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. um, there are going to have to be those kinds of really hard brass text conversations and, decisions made and i you know i i like to think there will be a lot of people who are on board but there are going to be a lot of people who push back too there are uh you know that's again and that's what i was talking about earlier everything is well and good now and people are saying the right things now but when it comes time to actually make these changes and fund these changes and when people are going to have to make some kind of sacrifice um, that's when we're going to see who's really serious about this and who isn't. Well, I was thinking, uh, I was thinking like really broadly, I was trying to kind of like, like I was trying to think of, uh, about ways in which human beings can coexist more sanely and more peacefully together on this earth. Not just people, not just like white people and black people or white people and people of color, but you know, country to country, religion to religion, whatever it is. And there is an idealistic strain in me that can get frustrated with tribalism of any kind. Um, Like I can think to myself sometimes like, God, you know, like I get that it's great to have like a cultural heritage and I get that it's great to have a religion or a nationality that's meaningful. Um, And I know that like my logic is not going to hold up, but the, the idealism that I'm trying to describe is this idea that like maybe the solution, like are we ever going to get to a point where we can do away with these things? Are we ever going to get to a point maybe where there is enough um, either sanity or uh, intermarriage, you know, and like the, we get to a point where like these distinctions don't matter as much anymore and we don't feel this sense of separation Uh, Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know. It's, you can just, it's probably pie in the sky, but I can get frustrated with people like being very into their like Catholicism or very into their Americanism or very into whatever it happens to be, because I feel like a lot of times these things become cudgels or they become ways of dividing us from one another. And it can seem when you sort of like dial things back to a more cosmic, like wide angle perspective, it can seem needless. Yeah, it can. It definitely can. So, but I, but it's like, that's probably a long way off. <laughs> uh, you know, it, 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 I think a lot of things are a long way off right now. And, but 
that doesn't mean we don't work toward them. You know, there, there are a lot of goals that simply are going to take a great deal of time. Um, but we can't be so intimidated by the distance between here and there that we don't do anything about trying to get there. So uh, are you uh, writing these days? I am writing these days. Well, because I have no choice. <laughs> it's <Right>. my job. <laughs> um, I didn't write for the first few, I would say for the first five or six weeks of um, quarantine, I wasn't writing that much because I was, I think, decompressing from five years of constant travel. And so, or maybe six years. And now I am finding my way back to the words. I mean, I was writing here and dribs, here and there and dribs and drabs, but it wasn't anything good. I haven't written anything good in years, unfortunately. But I am at least trying to get some things done now and to make progress on my books that are due imminently. Um, yeah. What are they? So, what are they? I'm, may I ask? Uh, yeah, I have. It's ridiculous. I overcommit all the time. I um, have a nonfiction book that's basically a writing advice book called How to Be Heard. And that's going to be out in spring 2021, if I turn it in. And I have a YA novel called The Year I Learned Everything that will be out in fall 2021. I actually have a graphic novel that will be out in October 27th, 2020, which I'm excited about. I co-wrote that with uh, my friend Tracy Lynn Oliver. And then I have an essay collection called TV Guide that will be out probably in 2022. I have an adult novel <laughs> that I what don't know when I'm going to finish. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. And then I have a secret project with my friend Channing Tatum uh, that I have to finish at some point in the next year and a half. What, and then, so, then you can't say anything about it. It's a TV project. It is not a TV project. Oh, uh, it is not. No, does it involve, it's not a, does it involve, not a movie. does it involve Channing dancing? No, no, sadly. No, <laughs> it does not. Um, so I'm doing all that. And then I'm working on some film and television hunger. Um, I'm writing a movie of hunger. Uh, and hopefully soon I'll be able to say for who, um, and yeah. Well, I love how you're like, I haven't done any writing for the past five years, but I have six books in the works and, uh, <laughs> I'm writing a screenplay. No, I said, I haven't done any good writing in the past five years. Some... Uh, I've written, um, but it has just been like taking blood from a stone. Uh, and it, it normally writing comes easy to me and the writing has not come easy as of late. And so it has been a real struggle. So let me ask you, because this, it, the, the time that we're living in, uh, like the, like George Floyd and, and, um, you know, the racial protest, uh, aside the COVID era mm -hmm. and the economic, uh, impacts of the COVID era have been enormously disruptive to what you were doing. You mentioned five or six years of, of nonstop travel. Like you were on speaking tour pretty much constantly, correct? I was, I was. So for you, this experience is like completely upended all of that. You can't have an audience. You can't get on an airplane, you know, or at least not without you know significant risk. So, um, like that has got to have been, like you must have. I, I can just picture you sleeping. Like you must have just <laughs> hit the wall and been like, "Well, I surrender. I can't get on an airplane. Can't keep going." So, I can see why you wouldn't have written, and you hopefully got some sleep. I got a little sleep. Uh, sleep does not come easily to me, but I actually, um, I got to spend quality time with my partner for the very first time. Like we've had quality time before, but we've been in a long distance relationship for the entirety of our relationship. And so all of a sudden we were spending all day, every day together. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a lot of togetherness. Right. And it's been great. You know, sometimes you think, oh, that's just too much togetherness. But we actually get along very well. And so it's been really nice to find that 
we're not only good when we see each other for like five days at a time. We're also good when we see each other for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so that's been really nice. Um, We've been watching a lot of TV and catching up on shows. I introduced her to the Fast and Furious series, (laughs) which is awesome because she loves it. She loves it. She got into it so much. And I was just like, I have picked the right partner. <laughs> like, this is it. I'm frankly surprised it took this long for you, for you to, uh, you know, indoctrinate. Well, you know, part of it, I mean, especially when we're in New York, our lives are very, very busy. She's very busy. I'm very busy. She's very busy. She's um, like, she also does the travel speaking thing. She runs a graduate program at the School of Visual Arts. Uh, she has a, a very wide circle of friends. We go out to dinner every night. We're going to shows two or three times a week. So, like, there was no time to really sit and, you know, invest in eight movies. Right. But now we have the time. Right. I mean, there <laughs> is. So it's kind of awesome. it's kind of the upside. I mean, you know, I've had this conversation with people during this period of time where, you know, for all of the difficulties, there is some there's something positive about the enforced slowness to a degree, and I think. You also have to flag it and say that there's a level of privilege involved. You know, some people don't have any kind of slowness. You know, there's no possibility mm-hmm. of that. Or they're just, you know, there are a lot of people really suffering economically. So you got to make sure to mention that. But in terms of uh, people who have been forced to, you know, homeschool, work from home, eat at home, like kind of live their lives uh, in an inward way to a degree that they might not have previously there can be something sort of nice about it. Sometimes it seems like we're moving too damn fast. Uh, it see, it can seem that way, yeah. But at the same time, like like you said, I think there's um there's a lot of privilege in being able to to you know speculate and muse about the speed of time uh, because we have the luxury of thinking about it. Uh, and in addition to enjoying the time that we've had at home, I've recognized how lucky we are because our work is not essential <laughs> in the ways that, at least my work, I can only speak for myself because I do think her work is essential because she's a, an educator. But, um, you know, when you see like that truly your work is inessential uh and that you have the privilege of removing yourself from society until a pandemic passes by. Um, I do think that gives you a different perspective on just your place in the world. At least it has given me a, a renewed perspective on my place in the world. And, you know, like this is, you know, your, your um, speaking tour stuff is on hold indefinitely, I would imagine. Like you're not going to resume that anytime soon. Uh, so like you said, you've been writing, trying to get back to the words, spending, mm-hmm. spending time with your partner. Um, has it given you perspective on, you know, the, the balance in your professional life? Cause you have these varied interests, you know, and I feel like yeah. trying to be a writer, especially working, um, especially on, on any, on anything really, but a book requires so much focus and attention and to be on the road constantly and to be, um, pulled into these social contexts, you know, where you're on stage speaking and you're answering questions and you're interacting with people. Like I could imagine that would be a drain on the vital energies that, um, a book can require, you know? So have you, have you taken time during the pandemic to sort of evaluate like issues of balance and how the future might look, or are you sitting there going, God, I can't wait for somebody to come up with a vaccine so I can get back to it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Both. Um, I have enjoyed the time off and hopefully, especially now that I'm writing again, I think I'm going to finally make some material progress on some of these projects that have been outstanding for quite some time. Um, But I also live in the real world where I have bills and responsibilities uh, and households to support. And so, you know, at some point the money is going to run out. Uh, I, I make most of my living from public speaking and not writing. So I'm going to be okay for the rest of this year. But, you know, coming come 2021, like things are going to start to not be okay. And so I, um, unless, you know, I take up new work or whatever, I'm going to be fine. Long story short, I'm going to be fine. But I'm also ready to get back to it. Not because I 
miss it, but because that's how I earn my income, uh, the, the, mo- the majority of my income. And so, you know, I do look forward to things normalizing at least somewhat um, and creating a space for us to get back to work. Um, um, but I do know that I'm going to take fewer jobs because it just was not sustainable. I was just go, go, go. And I hope I hold myself to this. I really do. Uh, I don't know if I will, but right now I feel like I don't want to do more than two events a month. I just think that's enough. Uh, and I don't want to have to be away um, from my home and my relationship for that long. That just seems unnecessary. Hmm. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I got to be honest. Like I keep up with you, um, or at least, you know, before I quit Twitter, I was like keeping up with you on Twitter a lot. And I would just get like, you know, the the basics of where you are. And then we would, every once in a while, we're in touch. And I'm just like, my God, mm-hmm. I'm worried about you. You know, like I'm like, she, <laughs> you're running so hard. You're like, I'm in Iceland. I'm in New York. I'm <laughs> I'm on like like how many frequent flyer miles do you have? Will you tell me that? Like you must be. I will. I have um, 1.4 million frequent flyer miles. <laughs> what is what is what does that even materially mean? Like, can you just like are you like uh, like Adam Sandler in Punch Drunk Love? Can you just go anywhere for the rest of your life? Like, not really, but it does mean that Debbie and I are going to go on an incredible honeymoon <laughs> because I have all of these miles. So yeah. it's going to be great. Well, do you know where you're going to go? We haven't decided yet. I wanted to go to Cartagena uh-huh. in Colombia yeah, and uh, some other cities in Colombia. And Debbie wants to go. And I think we're actually going to do both. I also want to go to Paris. And then uh, we're going to go to Antarctica. Damn. Like on yeah. get on one of those boats or whatever and go down there? We are going to get one on one of those boats and wear some parkas and some heavy boots and um, look at an eclipse uh, in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. Jesus. Can I come? <laughs> no. no. You're like, actually, you absolutely cannot come. I'm going to st- stow away on that boat, and right as you guys are standing on the bow looking at the eclipse, I'm just going to pop out of nowhere and say That's going to be awesome. I'm just going to be like, Brad Listy, what are you doing here? Go back to steerage. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so you've got a lot going on. Uh, you can't tell me about the Channing, uh, that that's all still under wraps. That's been under wraps for a while. I feel like, so it's been developed. Yes. Well, the thing is, it's, it's just, I'm overcommitted. So it's no one's fault. I just am overcommitted. And so I have to finish these other projects before I get to it, but we have an outline and I know what I'm going to do. And uh, it, it doesn't have to be as long as some of my other projects. Um, so I know what I'm going to do. I know what I want to say. Uh, and I mean, we're, we're working on it together. Um, and so I, it's going to be great. It's going to be a lot of fun. I needed a fun project because so much of what I do is incredibly depressing. So um, I just have to make the time. And yeah, so I just have to make the time. Wow. Okay. And then, so anything like that we have not addressed or that I failed to address um, in the on the front end of things with regard to the moment that we're in? Uh, any like closing thoughts in terms of like, you know, I don't know, just a note to kind of play as we as we bid farewell that people can can take away from this conversation and maybe um, you know into their lives. You know, I think the most important thing all of us can do, and I include myself in this, is make sure that we sustain the current energy that many of us are feeling. That it cannot just be this week or this month. It has to be for the rest of our lives. That we actively work to be anti-racist and to make sure that we are using our power, whatever it may be, um, to whatever extent we may have it. And pretty much everyone who would be listening to this podcast has some kind of power Um, that we're using our power, whether it's the power of the vote or the power of saying, I will not sell you another one of my books unless you hire a black publicist. Um, Things like that, like use your power and hold people accountable 
And don't lose energy for this because we have to maintain this momentum to make sure that another black person is not murdered by a, a police officer and to make sure that our children have a chance to live in a world that is significantly less racist. Mm. Yeah, no, I have something like heartbreaking that I heard this week was that really like brought the reality of uh, things home to me. It was this uh, African-American woman talking about her children and about growing up herself, like sort of having internalized that she was doomed, you know, it's like this internalization of just the system is fucked. I'm doomed because of the color of my skin. Um, like it was kind of a, it was a hardcore thing to say, but it made, broke my heart and I could, I could really feel it, you know, and I, I would hope that, um, we could make things better for today's kids. It would, it should not be tolerable to anybody that any child should feel that way. I, I agree. It's unacceptable. It, I think of my nieces and nephew. My nephew is 23 or 24. So, um, you know, he he is in the world as it is. But my nieces are eight and nine. And they are well aware of racism because they are young black girls. But... They aren't, they aren't jaded yet. They don't believe that their potential is limited yet. And I want that to never change. And I also want that to never change for them in terms of their gender. Um, and there is an, there's a point where they realize that they're, they're up against a lot. And I just hope that if we work hard enough, there is an entire generation of young people who won't know that there's something they're up against that they cannot overcome. And so that's what I'm hoping for. And then last thing I want to talk to you about simply because this is a, a literary show, but it's also, uh, you know, applicable to the matters at hand is this issue, the issue of systemic racism in publishing. And I, yeah. I know that there has yeah. been a strike, uh, among employees at publishing houses. I, I caught like wind of it. I don't know every last detail about it, but, you know, you spoke to this a little bit about saying, I'm not going to sell a book, you know, to your house unless you hire a black publicist or whatever, just as an example. But, um, you know, publishing is certainly not the most diverse business and has a long way to go in terms of uh, addressing these issues. Like, do you feel any sense of optimism in terms of, uh, you know, the direction that things are headed now? Do you feel like there could be some uh, wholesale changes that could be made as a result of the moment that we're in in publishing? Not yet, you know, because right now we're seeing a lot of writers share their advances. And I knew my advances were low and ridiculous. I did. But I didn't realize just how low they were. And like that even now that I'm getting paid great money, it's lower than what my white counterparts at my career level are making. That That's a real bitter pill to swallow, um, given what I've accomplished. It's publishing is, you know, publishing is run by white women who answer to white men. And uh, so I don't know how to turn to turn the tide. But, you know, part of it is that everyone's salaries need to go up so that people of color can start to work in publishing. And part of it is that we have to change the way that publishers have to change the way they they price what a book is worth. And. Uh, you know, I, one of the things that's going sort of not really widely discussed in this conversation about publishing paid me is that in general, those big advances don't serve anyone well. Like when you get a million dollars for your debut novel, the chances of that earning out are not good. But at the same time, you shouldn't be getting $12,500 for your debut novel. And so I would love for there to be a rational conversation about what a robust advance looks like for a debut writer and for a mid-career writer and for a late-career writer. That doesn't put them at a disadvantage in terms of earning out and having potential future income from royalties and selling other books. And so it's a big conversation and it's a complex conversation. And right now people are saying and doing the right things, but you know, some of these publisher actions, like a day of thinking and a day of action and so on like 
okay, that's great, but really give me a five-point thing, a five-point list of things that you're actually going to do that are material, that are going to have material consequences. Because not a week goes by where I don't hear from a young black woman who says, I don't know what to do. My agent told me that all of the editors who declined my essay collection said we already have a Roxanne Gay. And it breaks my heart when I hear these things because I never want to be sort of the boulder that is closing off the path to publication. And all black writers who have achieved any amount of success are put in this position where publishing really believes there can only be one Saeed Jones or one Tiara Jones or one Roxanne Gay. Uh, and that's that's really unfortunate because random white writers are allowed to be like a dime a dozen. And so there's a lot of psychology that has to change in publishing to really create change. And publishing knows that this problem exists. It has been put in their faces. I remember 10 years ago I wrote about this and compiled a list of black writers. Um, we Need Diverse Books came around probably three or four years ago and has been doing active work in this area and sustained and organized work. And nothing has changed. So I'm skeptical. Hmm. Okay, I, have, I, I lied. I have one last quick question. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm, I, obviously you're not supporting the current administration. I would assume you're going to support uh, Joe Biden in the election because he's the nominee in opposition. Uh, do you mm -hmm. have a sense of who he might pick as vice president? Do you have a, a personal favorite? Is there mm -hmm. somebody you're rooting for? I think he's probably going to go with Gretchen Whitmer who is the governor of Michigan. I hope that he picks Stacey Abrams or Elizabeth Warren. Even Kamala Harris would be fine, even though she's not my favorite. I still think she has some interesting ideas. Uh, but I suspect he's going to pick the, he's going to pull a Tim Kaine again. So that's hugely disappointing. And the idea would be Stacey. I think she has a lot of interesting ideas. Excuse me. And I think she's, one of the smartest people in the room. So I would love to see her picked, but I just don't think it's going to happen because, which is not unreasonable. She doesn't have a lot of, she doesn't have national experience, federal uh, legislative experience, but it's, I don't know that that should be a barrier given that a television show host is currently the president, <laughs> right. you know, like she's qualified and I think she would do a great job, but well, and I should, you know what, I, I just want to say about her, because that that is what people often say when she comes up is like, oh, well, you know, she's never had any, you know, executive leadership experience or national experience. And it's like, yeah, but you know what she got? I, I really do believe in my bones that the governorship of Georgia was stolen from her by Brian Kemp. Mm -hmm. And had that not happened, had that injustice not happened, she would be the governor of Georgia right now and would probably be like a slam dunk uh you know, she would be at the, there would be no red flag. Do you know what I'm saying? It would be like, of course, Absolutely. she's a leading contender. She's the governor of Georgia and she'd probably be very popular right now. And, you know, it's frustrating to hear that because she got so screwed in uh, 2018. Absolutely. Um, she was absolutely robbed of the governorship. She should be governor right now. And uh, it, it's, you know, it's just so, everything is so disappointing and overwhelming. Um, I actually really admire, I admire her for a great many reasons, but one of the reasons I most admire her is because a lesser person would have just taken just that loss and that unfair loss and just said, you know what? I'm done with public service, but instead she created fair fight and is working in, I think 25 States to, re-enfranchise voters and she's campaigning actively for the vice president position she wants the job and i think she would remake that position and then she would be the first woman president and that would be awesome so hmm. we'll see right yeah we'll see but i mean well let's come on let's not set ourselves up for a massive disappointment <laughs> like we we know that joe biden is going to do the least inspirational thing possible. But if he picks my fave, uh, Elizabeth Warren, I will be delighted yeah, because I, she's so smart and she's ready to be president today. She's yeah. She's uh, I like Elizabeth Warren in the, in the field. I was, I was inspired by her too. So 
Uh, I love talking with you. I appreciate uh, getting the time. I know you have a lot going on, and uh, I know my listeners are going to be thrilled to hear from you. Um, so great thanks. Best of luck with <laughs> the, like, 19 different projects that you have going on. Uh, <laughs> give my best to Channing. Tell him I said hello. I know he's uh, I will. He's probably a huge listener of this podcast. <laughs> How could he not How be? How could he not be, right? And um, I don't know. I hope when all of this, uh, you know, COVID business eventually settles itself that we get to hang out. I hope so too. I look forward to it. All right, Roxanne. And hey, congratulations on, uh, are you married or are you just engaged? Where, where are things? <laughs> uh, I'm married. Oh, you are. Well, congrats. I didn't know I if am. I knew that you had gotten engaged. That was like pre me leaving social media, but I did not know if the deal had been sealed. So it has been sealed. It has been sealed. So we were supposed to get married in October and uh, you know, with everything going on, like you can't get 400 people in a room safely. And so we are going to have the big wedding in November, but we uh, eloped last weekend. Oh my God. What good timing then. Where did you guys, elope, yeah. where did you guys elope to? <laughs> <laughs> we eloped right here in Los Angeles. Oh, you did. Well, I, we did. I think a that classy little strip mall joint. It was awesome. That's fabulous. Well, I, mm -hmm. uh, I wish you both congratulations and uh, I wish you both all the happiness in the world. It's, it's wonderful news. Thank you, Brad. Right, folks, that's Roxanne Gay. Go get her books. She's got a bunch of them. IET, An Untamed State, Bad Feminist, Difficult Women, Hunger. Go get yourself a copy of World of Wakanda. And stay tuned for uh, everything that she has in the works. Roxanne can be found online at RoxanneGay.com. You can follow her on Twitter at R Gay. She's on Facebook as well. Roxanne Gay. I forgot to mention she's an, a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. I can't keep up. If you would like to support this show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, it does have a Twitter feed. I don't run it, but uh, Joseph Grantham does, my social media director. You can follow the show and keep up with new episodes at Other PPL. You can also follow the show on Instagram. I think it's like otherppl.podcast. Thanks to Grey Wolf Press for sponsoring today's episode. Don't forget to get your copy of Postcolonial Love Poem by Natalie Diaz. This program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get the app. Don't forget that the entire archive of this podcast is, is offered freely. More than 640 episodes of this show, almost 650 episodes, all available for free to you, the listener. Go get it. Coming up on Wednesday, my conversation with Ashley Bryant Phillips, debut author of the critically acclaimed collection Sleepovers, a rising star in uh, the literary firmament, Ashley Bryant Phillips on Wednesday. All right, you guys, I feel like I was speaking too formally right there. I don't know what I'm doing. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs>